You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 9th of February. And on the show today, as global warming exceeds 1.5 degrees across an entire year for the first time, we heard from the UN's Climate Change Executive Secretary. Simon Steele is warming up for COP29 in Baku and he's calling on governments for faster action. Meanwhile, ice cores taken from the West Antarctic ice sheet show that it shrank suddenly and dramatically around 8,000 years ago. Glaciologist Professor Eric Wolf will tell us why we should fear a climate tipping point. And humans are increasingly coming into conflict with elephants in Sri Lanka, and it's leading to deaths on both sides. Can anything be done? Well, conservation expert Ravi Kuria called for dramatic action on our programme. We were also on weather watch here on the agenda because heavy rain and a significant drop in temperatures is forecast this weekend and into next week. We caught up with the National Centre of Meteorology and we also found out what Dubai's Road and Transport Authority is doing to prevent flooded roads. Meanwhile, with all eyes on the female stars winning prizes at the Grammys, we looked at how women are driving the music industry here in our region. We caught up with Anna George. She works with female artists here in the UAE. And we also looked into an intriguing story as to why Taylor Swift is giving this Sunday's Super Bowl a bit of a boost. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Lovely to have you with us. Now, uh, it's just after 11.36 and we focus quite a bit on the growing sort of film and TV industry here in the UAE. Uh, Especially whenever we do these sort of big media conferences, I always get into it then. But what about music? Um... In the last week, all eyes have essentially fallen on the success of all of those female performers over in the Grammys. And it turns out that female talent is also driving the music industry right here in the Middle East. Basically, the MENA region is the fastest growing music industry in the world, something that you would I don't know, something that you just wouldn't expect in many ways, I think. And in fact, the recorded music market revenue has grown and is growing by 24% year on year, driven, as you can imagine, almost entirely by streaming. Let's find out a little bit more about that growth. I'm joined in the studio by Anna George. She's the founder of FTA. They're a female-led creative agency specialising in music and brand partnerships. Anna, lovely to have you join us in the studio. Happy Friday. Good to see you. Happy Friday and thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Okay, tell me, why is the music sector developing so quickly right here in this region? It's not what I expected. Yeah, so I mean, like you said, um, firstly, so I've worked in the music industry here for 15 years and this is the most exciting time for the region. So uh, Mina's been one of the fastest growing music markets over the last couple of years. So year on year, we are seeing music industry revenues increasing, the sales are increasing, more people are streaming music, more people are choosing to sub- subscribe on DSPs like Ngami, Spotify, Apple Music. We're seeing more music being consumed on social media platforms. And I think, you know, if we take a step back and we look at, you know, Mina as a market, 
it's huge, right? The population in MENA is, what, around 400 million people. And a, a large proportion of that are under the age of 30, right? So that means we've got this huge demographic of people who are more active on their phones and are more active in consuming music. So I think that drives a key role as into why, you know, the market is moving so quickly here. And I think something that's so exciting for MENA at the moment is we have the attention of the global music industry and rightly so because the talent in this region is incredible. I mean that is astonishing. I never would have thought that if you think about all the music execs over in America you kind of I don't think I think when they think of the Middle East they think oil don't they and probably Saudi Arabia but it turns well that's what I thought they thought but it turns out that actually they're thinking about the artists that are coming out of this area what type of artists are coming out of the UAE and and the Middle East yeah so I think you know just to talk about why there's so much attention uh, coming in there's been over the last couple of years there's been a few there's been a lot of exciting things that have been happening very quickly so you know a lot of the global uh, players have been investing a lot more in this region so a lot more partnerships a lot more acquisitions a lot more buying arabic catalog investing in arabic music tripling uh, the size of their teams we've had uh, the ifpi come into the market which means for the first time we have the first official mina chart Billboard Arabia's just launched, right? So we've now got this global, credible platform that celebrates and pushes Arabic music out into the world. We've got the XP Music Conference in Saudi. That's in its third year. I went uh, in November and it's just growing year on year. So, you know, as a region, we just have this huge, diverse of uh, diverse uh, part of artists. So, you know, if I think about the artists that are under FTA, I've got Moroccans, Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian, Saudi. And, you know, they all come from different backgrounds, different upbringings, different, you know, it's a region driven by culture. So how that inspires them in their music and how that translates into their music infused with you know the influences that they get from the international the output of music that we're hearing from this region is just so incredible so for example I have female artists who are rappers who are hip-hop I have electronic DJs there's a lot more music female producers in this region at the moment so there's just this huge rise of talent I think what's so special about the market at the moment is we have this incredible emerging artist scene that now have these platforms to get their voices out there and heard and it's traveling into other markets so are people outside the Middle East, enjoying Middle Eastern sounding music. Yes, they are. I mean, also, you've got to remember there's Arabs all over the world, right? And we've now got platforms that means that we can get our music heard in their market. So, you know, there's artists from this region, um, like Weggs from Egypt, Eliana, Faluka, she's one of my artists, who are now touring outside of this region. So they're touring in the US, in the Canada, they're gigging in London. So something's working and it's getting out there. It's traveling outside of the region. Is it 
have we seen a sort of democratization of music because of the streaming services? Because it's so much easier for anyone to access any type of music anywhere? Or is there still a, a sort of gatekeeper to Spotify, for example? No, I mean, it's definitely traveling. And okay. like you said, it's definitely now going global. So you've also got to think about social media. So people consume music how you think they would, right? Streaming, radio, but then we've got social media, we've got TikTok. So people are hearing music more, they're using using music to create content, that content is going viral into other markets. So music's got all these different avenues to now travel across the globe. Okay, are we still waiting for a sort of breakthrough artist from the Middle East, though? I think of Rihanna for the Caribbean kind of thing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we have Eliana and, you know, she's globally recognised and there's a a lot of other artists close to getting to that stage. But I think we're definitely waiting for that one hit to go global you know there's a lot of talk about you know what happened in in latam right when latin music went global everyone is all eyes on the middle east that this is the next the next market that's gonna it's gonna achieve that also and we're gonna get that breakthrough song oh that's really exciting that's really exciting so what should we be listening to this weekend if we wanted to listen to some of your artists for example so my artist nausea she's from lebanon she's dropping her song today it's beautiful i won't say it in arabic but the english it's called uh, the walls of sound so it's all about her upbringing and everything you know you could hear what the walls in her house had to say it's all about that it's a beautiful song she's really poured her heart into it. it's got a lovely message behind it and um, it's literally dropping in the next few hours oh well so because i'm looking it up online trying to get it and of course it's not dropped no, yet not so yet. I can't later get on it. today i can't get it <laughs> oh, i mean that is absolutely amazing we'll keep a lookout for that um but really interesting anna thank you so much for joining us in the studio we talk so much about about film and TV yeah. and locally produced content from that perspective. But I don't think I've ever talked about music from the region on the radio. So it's great to have you join us. Thank you so Thank much you so for much your for time. Having me. That's Anna George. She's the founder of FTA. They are the first of its kind. They're a female-led creative agency specialising in music and brand partnerships. Uh, fantastic to have you on. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda. Right, it is Super Bowl weekend in the United States. That annual sporting event brings together, you know, fans and families across America to watch that league championship game of the National Football League. I know pretty much Nothing about it, it's fair to say. Uh, all I know is about the big concerts that happen in the in the middle, in the halftime. Um, but apparently this year, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be taking on the San Francisco 49ers. R&B icon Usher performing at the halftime show. But to be honest, it is another music star who is likely to draw the attention of the cameras far, far more. Yeah, Taylor Swift dating one of the footballers, a man called Travis Kelsey. He plays for the Chiefs 49ers. And it's thought that those brief moments when the camera focuses on Taylor and her reaction to the match, uh, it's thought that those brief moments could actually drive the game's highest viewership ever. Joining me to explain why is Stephen Bainbridge, sports and entertainment lawyer at Greenberg Traurig, right here in Dubai. Stephen, fab as always to have you join us on the line. So how big an impact is Taylor Swift 
uh, having on on football and and why? Hey, Georgia. Well, look, we're all going to find out. And and I think, you know, your own description of your, let's call it your nascent fandom in the NFL is a perfect example. The NFL is probably the, the most successful of the North American sports leagues in driving viewership, sponsorship, and ultimately revenues. And it comes down to, to what you mentioned, the Super Bowl phenomenon, that it it's cross-cultural. So it goes to, to people who are not traditionally sports fans. People tune in just for the halftime show. Some people just for the commercials. Um, but as you mentioned, the t- Taylor Swift phenomenon is, is quite intriguing. I think sometimes uh, to the bane of uh, hardcore football fans, a lot of uh, camera time has been devoted to her and and various luxury boxes during the playoff run. Um, But look, I I think if you look at the demographic of, of your standard fan and your Taylor Swift fans, I suspect that if I'm and I'm going back to my junior high school days and picturing Venn diagrams here, I don't think there's a great deal of overlap. So I think in that sense, the NFL sees that Taylor Swift and and her legion of fans represent a brand new audience that has been untapped. Uh, despite how well the NFL has done. So I I think the numbers will bear it out, and the numbers are very tightly watched and monitored. So we'll certainly find out probably as early as Monday. So just to give you a a sense of of some of the numbers that I've looked up, which I'm sure you you know as well, but apparently Swift's association with the NFL has boosted the league's brand value by over $122 million in just the last few months, and her impact on female viewership is staggering. It's it's a 53% increase among 12 to 17-year-olds, a 34% rise in those over 35, and a 24% rise in the 18 to 24 demographic. I mean... Stunning. Those, I know. Do those numbers just absolutely translate into revenue? I think they do. And, you know, I'm a little bit surprised that the 122 million brand value probably will be higher very soon. If you think to just the, the, the image of her in a box, often accompanied by other celebrities and Kelsey family members who have since become celebrities. I know I saw an interview with Travis Kelsey's mom the other day. Um, but those fans see her often wearing a jersey. Just think of things like jersey sales that have gone up and that it's now become a fashionable association for that. As you say, that 12 to 17-year-old demographic, advertisers you know, absolutely chase that. That's the holy grail. If you can engage next generation spending, um, it, it's unbelievable what could, what can be accomplished. What if they break up? I mean, they've only been going out a few months. <laughs> well, I mean, look... Georgie, you know, you're such a realist. I mean, let us have a little bit of uh, fantasy here. I'm an, I'm a romantic. Let's hope that they ride off into the sunset. But um, look, I, I think <laughs> history tells us that they probably will break up and they'll both move on to, to other partners and hopefully have uh, happy lives and relationships. But I think this experience and this run through the playoffs um, – you know, we, when we talk about advertisers and sponsorship, we always want sticky sponsorship, something that somebody new will come in and they'll, for some reason or other, they'll stay. Many of these people will leave if, if Taylor Swift does uh, horribly break up and, and, and 
goes forth with someone unassociated with the NFL. Um, but look, some of those people will stay. The fashionability of the NFL in that new demographic will have some sticking power. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the Super Bowl itself is such a cultural event, not just a sporting event, that there will be all that more people interested and engaged in Super Bowl parties this year, um, the food sales that go up, the, the sort of community aspect of having people in the neighborhoods get together. And I, I would venture that many of those people that are going to be going to their first Super Bowl party this year will see it as the social and cultural event that it is rather than just the sporting event. And they'll be at Super Bowl parties for years to come as fans, regardless of what happens with, with this storied relationship. Stephen Bainbridge, always fantastic to get you on the radio. Thank you very much indeed for your reaction to Taylor Swift and uh, Travis Kelsey's relationship. Things you never thought you would be talking about. Uh, true, true. <laughs> Have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Stephen, sports and entertainment lawyer at Greenberg Traurig in Dubai. Give me 10 minutes of your time because this is important information um, that you definitely need to know, even though I do know that, you know, talking about climate change is not necessarily a conversation starter that you would, you're not going to run with it on a Friday night, but it's still a Friday morning. So we're going to go with it. Um, And it is, we're going to make it as interesting as we can, aren't we? Jen's in the studio. There's two of us in this game and we're going to make it work. Um, And it's a really important headline because for the first time, global warming has exceeded 1.5 degrees across an entire year. Now, that is according to the EU's climate service. Why is that important? Well, world leaders promised back in 2015 that they would try to limit the long-term temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. Now, that is important. That also is important. So many layers of importance. That is also important because it's seen as crucial to help avoid the most damaging impacts of climate change. So if it goes... If we warm up more than 1.5 degrees, then we're really in trouble, she said, choosing her words carefully. Now, the other thing is, is the world leaders promised that this wouldn't happen. Um, and it's happened. Now, <laughs> if you get into the nitty gritty, I know, if you get into the nitty gritty of it, world leaders will be able to say, well, this first year long breach doesn't necessarily break that landmark Paris agreement. Um, but let's be honest, it really does bring the world quite a lot closer to doing so in the long term. Now, producer Jennifer Crichton, for her, for her sins, has been following this story and joins me now in the studio. Uh, Jen, first of all, thank you for following this story for us. Is 1.5 degrees now impossible. Is it ever going to be possible for us to keep the the world, the global warming below that number? It is possible. Okay. So let's start with that. It is possible. Possibly. Now, this 1.5 number is critical, but this year is an interesting one because it does breach 1.5. That's unquestionable. We have seen the evidence of that. However, there are all sorts of odd meteorological factors at play. We entered an El Nino year. We've been in a long period of El Nino, which keeps temperatures low. So there's there's a few different things at play. It doesn't necessarily mean that temperatures are going to remain 1.5 degrees higher. But 
let's get the, the hard bit out of the way first. It's not just air temperatures that are concerning experts. The world's sea surface is also at its highest ever recorded average temperature. And that's worrying because normally we don't see ocean temperatures peak for another month or so. So not good. But scientists are saying that we can still slow warming and prevent the worst of it if we take very, very urgent action. And just this week, UN Climate Change Executive Secretary Simon Steele gave a major speech in Baku, Azerbaijan, where this year's COP climate conference will be held. And his opening was, I would say, pretty stark. The time has passed for business as usual in all aspects of the world's climate fight. So today, I want us to start in 2050, imagining what the world will look like if we do succeed in both limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius and protecting all peoples from climate change impacts. Of course, it will not be a utopia and there is a potential extinction to contend with. But I'll come back to that later. Extinction's a scary word, isn't it? Yeah, I prefer not to run with that one. Yeah, bit worrying, but... I think he was maybe listening to your introduction because he obviously realises that a lot of us are feeling a bit fatigued, shall yes, we say. there's a phrase for it. It's, it's uh, disaster fatigue. Yes. Yeah. It's and a it's, symptom. There's a sort of unwillingness, inability perhaps, to cope with the idea of human extinction. And it is making a lot of people effectively turn away from the climate change conversation, understandably so. So I think he's picked up on that because he took a really interesting approach to things. It wasn't the doom-mongering speech that we might have expected. Instead, as you heard a taste of there, he looked ahead to a very different 2050, which he argued is one that we could see if we take decisive action as a global community. In this vision of success, global energy systems are at net zero emissions. Renewables have made energy accessible, affordable and predictable for all. That means we avoid the shocks and inequalities that have shaped economic trends and conflicts in the past. The global financial system has prioritized human well-being over servicing only the bottom line. The trillions previously spent on fossil fuel subsidies are available for better purposes. Healthcare, education, safety nets for those who fall behind. Our resilient societies have moved from an extractive to a regenerative relationship with nature. It's no longer medically hazardous to go outside in major cities due to air pollution. Millions of lives are saved each year as a consequence. This vision is not bright-eyed, wishful thinking. It is reflected across the full gamut of the Paris Agreement, and agreements negotiated line by line, word by word, comma by comma, at subsequent UN climate conferences. It is neither utopian nor dystopian. It is utilitarian, pragmatic, and achievable, based on existing but not yet fully scaled technologies and implemented policies. OK, a bit of hope there, uh, thank goodness. Uh, but of course, what he's actually talking about there is a complete, total 
overhaul of the global economy. And realistically, I mean, even if there is the um, drive to do it, it's not going to be cheap. No. And I think we've known that for a while, haven't we? We know that change like that can be expensive. What we haven't really heard very often is just how expensive it might be. And this time, Steele came with numbers. Big numbers. We must spend the year working collectively to evolve our global financial system so it's fit for purpose. With a clear plan to meaningfully execute the climate transition. Looking at the numbers, it's clear that to achieve this transition, we need money and lots of it. $2.4 trillion, if not more. $2.4 trillion is what the high-level expert group on climate finance estimates is needed every year to invest in renewable energy, adaptation and other climate-related issues in developing countries, excluding China. Whether on slashing emissions or building climate resilience, it's already blazingly obvious that finance is the make-or-break factor in the world's climate fight, in quantity, quality, and in innovation. In fact, without far more finance, 2023's climate wins will quickly fizzle away into more empty promises. Okay, so Jen, where does the agreement that we reached in Dubai back in, oh, I think it was the 3rd of December or something like that, uh, where does that reach into the picture? Well, it's a start for sure, but as Steele says there, it could fizzle out if we don't actually look at the finances of it. And he was very clear that actually that paper doesn't represent anything even approaching an end point in the battle against climate change. Now, of course, the Dubai agreement, Declaration? What are we calling it? Dubai deal is what I wanted to call it, but I think it's called the UAE consensus officially. Well, the UAE consensus was a very positive step in the right direction, but critics have highlighted that, like the Paris text before it, there is wriggle room, shall we say, remaining for nations that are determined to avoid taking their share of the responsibility. And Steele had a pretty serious warning for them. Whilst last year's agreement on the global stocktake at COP28 was far from perfect. It would have been unthinkable just a few years ago and sends a very strong signal about the inevitability of global decarbonisation. But now is no time for victory laps. It's time to get on with the job. Likewise, hiding behind loopholes in decision texts or dodging the hard work ahead through selective interpretation will be entirely self-defeating for any government as climate impacts hammer every country's economy and population. And all of that said, yesterday's figures from Copernicus about the world breaching 1.5 degrees is definitely far from good news. But Steele did seem very much determined to show delegates in Baku and the rest of us listening what we have to gain from decisive climate action. No doom-mongering, just here's a picture of a much better world that you could live in if you do this properly. And he said that while the reality is risky, we can achieve that if we play our cards right. Which brings me back to the extinction in 2050 I mentioned at the start. Having completed its core mission, that is the extinction 
of UN climate change as we currently know it. In a functioning era of implementation, I can foresee our organization existing only as a data repository, accurately reflecting the numbers as countries deliver on their commitments in line with the already agreed global targets. It's my earnest hope that by 2050, this organization will be rendered redundant in a net zero climate resilient global economy. Consigned to a place in the history books, a chapter about humanity saved itself and its only home. Right. That is Simon Steele there. Uh, Steele, I should say, bringing us up to date with the current state of play when it comes to the efforts being made by world governments to resolve or at least mitigate against that climate crisis. Uh, Simon Steele, of course, UN Climate Change Executive Secretary, and that was him speaking in Baku this week. Huge thanks to producer Jennifer Crichton for keeping an eye on that story. Okay, we're looking now at global warming and the impacts that it could have on the Antarctic ice and therefore on sea levels because a new 2,000-foot-long ice core drawn from the West Antarctic ice sheet show that it shrank very suddenly and very dramatically about 8,000 years ago uh, by as much as 450 metres, which visually is about the height of the Empire State Building. And that happened over a period of about 200 years at the end of the last ice age. I know that doesn't sound very quick, uh, but for glaciologists, it is very quick. And what's worrying about this is because it shows that when glacier ice starts melting, if it reaches a tipping point, it can melt worryingly fast. And environmental scientists say we could be heading towards that tipping point now due to climate change. Now, earlier I spoke to study author and glaciologist Professor Eric Wolf. He's from the Department of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. And he talked me through what they found out. In this case, we went to a place called Skytrain Ice Rise, which is one of the remotest places in the Antarctic. You have to fly with small aircraft for several hours from the main station. We set up a camp with eight people and you actually drill about two metres of ice at a time. It's a cylinder 10 centimetres in diameter. You drill about two metres at a time and eventually we got to the very bottom, to the rock at the bottom, which was 651 metres down. And that provides us with ice that goes back many tens of thousands of years. What have you discovered with this ice core And is it sort of part of your ongoing research? Do glaciologists regularly get cores out of icebergs? So what what we've discovered with this ice core is that the Antarctic ice sheet, or at least one part of it, retreated very rapidly. It lost a lot of ice about 8,000 years ago, all at one go. So where where we are, it dropped in elevation by 400 metres in 200 years. And this is important because it tells us that the processes that we think happen that can make ice sheets unstable and retreat very rapidly really did occur. When you just see them in models, you think, well, I, you know, I believe it. That's what the physics says, but I've not seen it happen. In this case, from the ice core, we can actually see it happening very fast. I'm going to go straight in with the climate change deniers question. Not that I'm a climate change denier. I must emphasize that. But does this show that ice ebbs and flows in the Arctic and Antarctic. And as a consequence, we shouldn't worry and that it's clearly not human-caused climate change. And this is just something that happens naturally. 
Okay, so the time period we're talking about is a time coming out of the last ice age. So we know that the Antarctic ice sheet was much bigger 20,000 years ago than it is today. There was ice right out to the edge of the continental shelf. So this is the retreat from that towards the present position. So it's an example of what can happen when the ice is retreating fast. Luckily, at that point, it actually stopped at the present position. But the worry is that as we warm the climate beyond what it's seen in the last few thousand years, we might start it to retreat again at similar speeds. And so this study, while it might not be the dream that the climate change deniers hoped, it nevertheless is incredibly helpful for us looking ahead into what might happen, the process by which ice might melt. Yes, it's important for two reasons. One, because it it shows us that what we think happens in our models really does happen. But secondly, the models couldn't pin down when it happened or exactly how fast it happened. We're now telling them when it happened and how fast it happened. So that enables them to tune the models to what happened in the past so that when they look at what happens in the future, they'll be much more precise. Are there concerns that indeed this ice could retreat very quickly indeed? There are. Unfortunately, there's a process that makes ice in places like West Antarctica, which is the part of Antarctica we're talking about, it makes it retreat very fast once it starts. And and that was what we're studying, whether that's what really happened. Uh, The reason is because the ice is, although it's grounded on bedrock, that bedrock is below sea level. And so what happens is when it starts to disappear, it's very easy to float a lot of it all at once to, to push it up and make a lot of it float so that it keeps on retreating in a kind of unstable process. Are we already seeing this in certain parts of the world? Okay, that's difficult to answer. In one part of West Antarctica, things are the ice is retreating, but we don't really have long enough records to be absolutely certain that this is the start of this unstable retreat process. Uh, What we do know is that if we keep on warming, we will eventually cross a threshold. Uh, People like to talk about tipping points. I prefer the word threshold, a threshold where things will happen very fast. And the problem is we don't really know where that threshold is, whether it's at 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, 3 degrees. So my take on it is that we, we really don't want to test that out. We'd really rather not find out where the threshold is because that would lead to very large sea level rises. Professor Eric Wolfe there from the Department of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. Welcome back to The Agenda. Turning our attention to something slightly different now because there is a widening conflict in Sri Lanka that's very rarely actually reported outside the country and it is taking lives on both sides. Last year, nearly 200 people died in encounters with elephants and during the same period, 470 elephants died, half of them at the hands of humans. Now, on average, that means more than one elephant died each day of the year, while a human was killed every two days. So what is causing the problem? Well, earlier I spoke to Ravi Korea. He is founder and president of the Sri Lanka Wildlife Conservation Society, and he explained. Well, the situation in Sri Lanka is practically like anywhere else in the world, where wildlife is facing one of their greatest challenges, which is habitat loss. Today, Sri Lanka which is an island the size of Ireland, basically, has Australia's human population, about 21 million people, 
and we have the second largest Asian elephant population in the island. So we guest estimate that we have between 5,000 and 7,000 elephants. And into this situation where the world's second largest terrestrial mammal is losing habitat, you have the situation where the habitat that is lost is mostly comes under subsistence agriculture. So these are also some of the poor rural population of Sri Lanka. And now you have the world's second largest mammal, terrestrial mammal, has shrinking habitat. And then around this shrinking habitat is expanding agricultural land with extremely, you know, enticing and attractive crops, which is enticement to these animals. So they're coming in to get bananas, rice, watermelon, maybe whatever lovely fruits that they would love to eat. It's like they must think the buffet is open. Exactly. It's not all the elephants that do this. The herds that mostly consist of related females and their offspring tend to shy away from human habitations. But the chronic case of where elephants purposely venture into villages and raid crops, go and break village homes to eat food that has been stored inside and feed on any other, you know, crash crops the farmer is growing in his home garden. These are, most of the time, uh, males. And again, these are not all the males. So these are males that have got habituated, probably mainly because these farms of us established in their home range territories. And they encountered these farms during their ranging, and now they have got a taste of the crops. The tragedy is this here, is the fact that many of these communities that today face human-elephant conflict, it seems like they have been set up to this situation. Because when these farms, when these lands were being distributed, they were elephant habitat, where elephants have lived for millennia. For whatever the reason, the government decides this land we are going to distribute to people, but they don't pay attention to the fact there are elephants in this land and the elephants are still there. It's not like they eradicated the elephants, you know. We're in a disastrous situation now from the point of view of elephant protection, where furious, scared villagers are killing the elephants in order to protect themselves effectively. Is there a middle ground where the two can rub along together? Or do you think we are going to face continuing incidents like the ones we talked about? These people, when they were given land, they should have known what they were getting themselves into. Any person in any town, any city, when they want to go and live in a certain neighborhood, they make certain, you know, research. You study a little bit. Is this neighborhood good? Are the schools good? Are there a lot of criminal you know, activities here? And it's the same thing here because people clamor for land, but the people also, in a sense, who are accepting this land run should pay attention to the fact, what are they getting into? I would encourage these farmers to leave. Leave the area. It's not going to work. That conflict is only going to intensify and that can be seen by the current numbers of conflict in Sri Lanka. I mean, they have been trying to address this conflict for decades. I mean, they have done various measures like putting electric fences around national parks. Conflict has only intensified. During that period, we have come up with some very pioneering concepts 
One was the village elephant fencing, where we suggested put the fences around the villages, not the parks, don't restrict the elephants, just put the fence where you don't want elephants to go, and then train the villages to take care of these fences. So the fences we erected, they are still working after 25 years. Then we came up with the more holistic solution because you can't put electric fences everywhere. And that was Project Orange Elephant. When we found out that elephants don't like citrus, we started to encourage farmers to grow oranges. And this has been now going on since 2006. And we have distributed over 100,000 orange plants and close to 500 farmers have benefited now. So not only the elephants now come and attack their crops in their home gardens or their homes, they're also making an extra income now, selling oranges. And the orange trees also contribute into carbon sequestering. And then when conflict became so intense where farmers were shooting elephants and school children couldn't go to school because of elephants being there, we came up with the idea of creating the world's first elephant-friendly bus service, where school children were transported every day to school and back home, free of charge, in this elephant-friendly bus. Immediately, the conflict dropped by 80%. And now today, you can now see again elephants moving around, people going through, and we have restored, you know, in a sense, tolerance in the corridor. Ravi Coria there, founder and president of the Sri Lanka Wildlife Conservation Society, uh, giving us the lowdown on the situation in the highlands of Sri Lanka. Uh, Really interesting stuff. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Okay, so we are coming up towards the weekend, aren't we? Like It feels very close indeed, especially for those of you who finish at midday the kids um, and teachers, of course. Uh, But if you are looking forward to a spot of beach time, then you're going to need a plan B because meteorologists are warning that heavy rain and high winds are forecast across the UAE from Sunday until early next week. So just how bad could things get? I mean, let's be honest, we are here in the UAE. Anyone who's come from a country where it properly rains knows that it's never that bad. Uh, But we wanted to get a proper forecast. So I'm joined now on Teams by Rashid al from the National Centre for Meteorology in Abu Dhabi. Thank you so much for joining us on the line, Rashid. Tell me, talk me through what's going to happen. Let's start with, with Sunday. Is that when we're going to start to see this unsettled weather? Thanks to you at first uh, and uh, welcome uh, for you all. At first, uh, we're going to talk about today's weather. Actually, the weather is expected to be partly cloudy and low cloud will appear over scattered areas, uh, especially northward and eastward for today. Uh, And the humid uh, weather is expected today by night and Saturday morning with the probability of fog or mist formation over some internal and coastal areas. Uh, with that being said, uh, light to moderate uh, winds uh, uh, is expected uh, to be northwesterly uh, to northeasterly, freshening at times, and uh, the sea will be more slight to moderate in the Arabian Gulf and slight in Oman Sea. And in regards of the situation, we are the 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 country is uh, will be uh, affected by uh, uh, an unstable weather starting from Sunday, as what you've said. Uh, earlier, starting from Sunday early morning until uh, 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 Tuesday uh, afternoon, uh, where the clouds will start uh, increasing gradually, accompanied with some convective clouds associated with rainfall of different instances, intensities, 
with lightning and thunder and hail at times uh, over some uh, coastal and northern and some eastern areas. Of course, uh, with the uh, fresh to strong at time wind uh, causing blowing dust and sand and reducing the horizontal visibility with also uh, roughness of sea. So uh, this situation is expected to uh, concentrate more over the northern and eastern countries, uh, eastern areas of the country, and uh, expected to uh, start uh, it ways out of the country by uh, the Tuesday uh, daytime. So you mentioned there that it's mostly going to be seen in the in the north and the west. Did you say west or and, east? Uh, east? It's east actually, east. north and, and east. east. And, yeah, and also coastal areas uh, with that being mentioned also. So we will see it in Dubai and Abu Dhabi then, the main sort of... Uh, hopefully, yes. Uh, it will be over uh, the coastal areas starting from Abu Dhabi until the northern areas like Ras Al Khaimah and Fujairah. So some serious weather on the way. After that, after Tuesday, are things settling down again or are we... St- I mean, seasonally, this uh, this is the time when we get a bit of weather, isn't it? It is yes, of course. Uh, actually, as I as, uh, as I mentioned before, it will be start at uh, on sat- uh, Sunday early morning, and tomorrow uh, night uh, late night, and uh, the weather will st- the the clouds will start approaching the country from the uh, Arabian Gulf over the islands, and then it will move uh, by Sunday early morning over the coastal areas and northern areas, uh, moving its way. Uh, 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 towards all over the country, over scattered areas of the country. Uh, Rashid, thank you so much for bringing us up to date with that forecast. Uh, always well worth knowing that you need to get the garden furniture in on Saturday night. Definitely not worth getting the car washed on Saturday because it's going to be spattered with sand uh, by Sunday. And no boat trips for Sunday, I think it's fair to say. I think we'll be saving our beach trips uh, for later on this year. Uh, that was Rashid Alamahi. He is a forecaster with the National Centre of Meteorology, bringing us up to date on the spot of weather that we are going to be having uh, coming into next week. Now, it is fair to say that um, if we do end up with those heavy rainstorms, the roads in Dubai, at least, won't be staying waterlogged for long because the Emirates Road and Transport Authority has jo- launched a joint flood management room. We have talked about this a bit on the programme in the past, but essentially it's organised by the Enterprise Command and Control Centre. Um, and that that centre will address any sort of water ponds or water accumulation during the heavy rain. It'll also monitor and manage traffic and the various transport modes to ensure that everything's kept um, moving. Uh, to find out more, a little earlier I spoke to Hamad Alafifi. He is director of that Enterprise Command and Control Centre at the Roads and Transport Authority and he explained what that control room will do. The aim of having a joint flood management room launched recently in collaboration with our strategic partners, Dubai Police, Dubai Municipality, Mohammed bin Rashid Housing Establishments, and some representatives from the main developers, is to ensure an effective communication, collaboration, and readiness, as well as being a proactive in terms of monitoring response plans using latest technologies, distribution of on-site field teams, and reallocation of the resources, optimally to have faster decision and response to the addressing of 
water accumulations that are occurring due to heavy rains, which impacts the road and the transport users in the Emirate of Dubai. This, of course, collaboration is reflecting the commitment of RTA in implementing the leadership directive and vision in enhancing Dubai's position today using those smart technologies as one of the world's smartest cities, leading to uh, improving level of service, recovery, and response to any adverse weather conditions that are occurring due to the heavy rain seasons. Yes, I mean, that is the thing. When it rains here in Dubai, it's amazing. First of all, the drivers don't seem to have any idea what to do in the rain, even though all of us or the majority of us have come from countries where it does rain. And then, of course, we do get the sort of water logging elements, you know, the water ponds gathering, accumulating, the water accumulating. So who have you actually got involved in overseeing the road? As we mentioned, it's a joint flood management room, which means that it comprises of all these strategic partners that are involved in such instances like Dubai police that would actually monitor, divert traffic, as well as scene management at those accumulated locations. Uh, Dubai municipality as a response to remove those water accumulations as fast as possible to make it clear for the road users on the major roads, as well as, of course, ourselves, the Roads and Transport Authority, where most of the main roads are being also addressed through quick response to remove and clear those water accumulations using different pumping stations, as well as, of course, the integrated or comprehensive infrastructure in Dubai today for stormwater drainage systems. So all of this collaborative effort is to ensure an effective communication as well as more efficient response by redistributing those allocated resources in a strategic way to respond faster or to respond faster and clear those accumulations using different different tankers and resources that together becomes more than 150 uh, different resources as well as on site to ensure that effective clearance and response times. It's amazing. Maybe as a layperson, you don't realise how many moving parts there are in, in keeping the roads moving. I'd also love to talk about the tech, because I know that the RTA has access to all sorts of sort of AI driven technology. Are you able essentially to monitor the roads, all the roads in Dubai at all times? What you mentioned is the essence of this. I mean, when you look at the joint flood management room, what is it? Is it just a room? No. And that's the beauty of it. Using the technologies that uh, we have in uh, the Enterprise Command and Control Center through uh, utilizing different um, sensors and GIS maps where we have allocated those identified areas of around black spots of 190 locations being all on one heat map, showing also an indication of all the different pump sites as well as the different distribution of resources. Then we have a video wall screen that can display on that different uh, around 450 cameras that actually covers at least 91% of those identified locations of water accumulations on the main roads of the city. We have also a communication platform, which is help us to communicate from the center with the on-site fields and vice versa to see and monitor the status of those water accumulations, the response, as well as 
the clearance of those sites during the heavy rain. I can reiterate also that these technologies help the joint team to make informed and fast decisions to reallocate the resources accordingly and clear these congested populated locations, which gives us a better response, better clearance and safer roads for all transport users. Really interesting to hear there about how the Dubai Roads and Transport Authority are planning to keep our roads, frankly, clear of water ponds. Great there to hear from Hamad Alafifi, Director of the Enterprise Command and Control Centre at Dubai's Roads and Transport Authority. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.